back. I'll take your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Five books from the end of the Old Testament, just after Nahum. Habakkuk chapter 2. You know, a pastor once asked his congregation, if you saw a book at the bookstore entitled, How to Lose It All, would you buy it? You might say, why would I? I have no interest in knowing how to lose it all. On the other hand, you may want to buy it to learn what not to do. Well, our passage for today is a revelation of how to lose it all. And I want you to follow and see this in verses 6 through 20. Verses 6 through 20 of Habakkuk 2. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him? Even mockery and insinuations against him. And say, woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourselves drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all of its inhabitants. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it, or the image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. And may God add His blessing to the reading of that portion of Scripture. What you just read with me in these verses are God's woes of judgment upon Babylon. You probably picked up on that. 
Actually, it's in the form of a taunt song that will come through the nations and peoples Babylon previously conquered. It has five stanzas of three verses each, revealing their wickedness and its consequences. Look with me at verse 6, for example. Will not all these, and he's referring back to the nation and peoples of verse 5, take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake. Now it's important to understand that the previous context here, verses 4 and 5, which we looked at two weeks ago, provides the introduction that sets the tone for the text that we are in today. Look what he says back in verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Verse 5, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Then he says, will not all these take up a taunt song against him? Who's the him there? It's the proud one. It's the haughty man, which is represented by Babylon. And so in the following verses, you have the gory details of what happens to a nation, to a people whose hearts are filled with pride, whose strength is their God. They're living without God, doing what pleases self, dependent upon oneself, and without regard for others. You know, really, this is everyone who is unregenerate. And unbelieving to one degree or another. Unfortunately, at times we see pride in the hearts and lives of God's people as well. It sort of reminds me of the parable Jesus shared concerning greed. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, just listen to these words. And he told this a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus said that of people in his day, and certainly we see this so picturesque in this text here that we just read. So imagine what was going on in the heart of Habakkuk. 
as he listened and saw the prophecy and communicated it on tablets for people to see. It was a sober reality that God was in charge and you must take him seriously. Now I know that in this prophecy there was some consolation for the hearts that God would deal justly with the enemy thinking about Habakkuk and the righteous remnant. But where would this leave them personally and spiritually? You have to think about that as well. Hopefully to submit to Yahweh God no matter what. And we'll come back to that. Well, how about your heart this morning, beloved? As you start to consider this in your own mind. In a moment, you're going to see how to lose it all. And pride is at its very core. So I want you to follow with me as I consider one lesson. One lesson about pride and then apply its cure so that you and I might remain faithful to our God. And so what is this lesson? What's the lesson? You know it. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It's this. Pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. In Proverbs 16 and verse 5, it says this. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. It's followed up in verse 18 with these words. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And if you didn't get that, in chapter 18, he says it once again. The same truth. Pride goes before destruction. That is the lesson we need to learn from this text. Clearly, this is evident and intensified with each stanza of this taunt song. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this this morning. I don't. And so I need you to be patient with me as we work through this a little bit, all right? But I do want to give you a taste of Babylon's wickedness that led to their downfall. Because there is application here for us as we sit here today. Look with me at stanza number one, verses six to eight. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. What do you see here? Actually, it's extortion. What is extortion? It's stealing from others to gain wealth. It's embedded in pride. 
Babylon did this in many forms as they plundered and looted the nations they conquered. And even bringing heavy taxation upon those that they kept alive. Well, God promised that the tables would be turned on them. Babylon's victims would become the creditors. And they would be coming to collect. I like what Jeremiah says concerning this because he was a prophet, a contemporary of Habakkuk. Listen to these words from him in Jeremiah 17, verses 10 and 11. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a fool. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Who is Jeremiah speaking to? It's wicked Judah at this time. And yet, you see in this message to Babylon that it was indirectly touching wicked Judah as well for their violence, as we're going to come back to here in a little bit. And so in stanza one, he's rebuking this nation of Babylon for its extortion. But God didn't stop there. He continued, stanza number two, verses nine to eleven. Woe to him who gets evil gain to his house and puts his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. And so what do we notice here? It's exploitation. It's simply profiting at another's expense. And really, this is a refrain, an echo, so to speak, from the previous stanza. Babylon plundered other nations and used their resources, man, beast, wealth, to build their own fortress, which they believe could not be penetrated And the picture here is of a bird which builds its nest on high to be safe from the harm below. That's the picture here. But again, God declared their actions as unjust, as sinful. And the very materials that they used for their fortress became a witness of their eventual doom. Losing the very security that they sought to gain. Pride does indeed go before destruction. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, by the way, Jesus quoted this text in speaking about Satan. But Isaiah here is speaking to the king of Babylon, who is actually Satan's servant. And notice what he says. 
How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Wow, those are very sobering words to the king of Babylon at that time. Who pictures Satan, who did the very same thing. The king of Babylon was a servant of Satan. So in these first two stanzas, you have extortion and exploitation. This leads to the third stanza. Verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. And founds a town with violence or injustice. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire? And nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen and amen to that. Clearly, what is the evil that is mentioned here? It's violence. It's violence. Specifically, building a city with bloodshed. That's what the text says. The Babylonians were known to be cruel and ruthless people committing unspeakable crimes to build their luxurious empire. And it was all for the purpose of gaining and demonstrating their power. Their power without God. However, God said that all their efforts would be like wood thrown into the fire and burned. It would become like ash. And instead, one day, He and His power would be on display. That's what we see there in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Beloved, this is like blinking lights of hope. (laughs) In the midst of this text, which speaks about destruction upon pride. It's wonderful. And that thought is even carried into the next stanza as we're going to see. And so let's turn to the fourth stanza. Verses 15 to 17. What does he go on to say? Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourselves drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon, which by the way is a symbol of Israel there, will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrify them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. That's a repeat of verse 8. And so what is the woeful dirge about this time? It's about seduction. This is the exploitation of verses 9 through 11 intensified. 
It's a violence taken to another level as seen in verse 15 and in verse 17. You see, on one hand, the Babylonians deceived some of the nations, maybe with promises of protection if they allied with them. I say that because there in verse 15, their nearby nations were called neighbors. And so there was some relationship that they had with them. But it was only to get them to their parties, to intoxicate them, to poison them, and then make them pray to such things as sexual abuse, slavery, and even murder. It was very humiliating. And then they would strip their land and cities of its resources, its wood, its stone, its beasts for food and firework during their military campaigns. And for their building projects as well. And so God declared there in verse 16, also in the first part of verse 17, that Babylon would experience the cup of his wrath, being humiliated actually in the same way as their victims. And the picture here is of a drunk lying in its own vomit, naked, and exposing his shame, his uncircumcision, that he was a pagan against God. And so their glory would be replaced with God's glory. (laughs) How wonderful! Again, this is blinking lights of hope to the nation of Judah as they heard this judgment upon Babylon. Well, this taunt song is not complete yet. There's one more stanza, verses 18 to 20. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Again, what is the clear evil that is spoken of here? It's idolatry. The Babylonians were a people who trusted in images that were crafted and decorated by their own hands. To guide, to direct, to teach them. And so since Yahweh God was not their God, they would be greatly disappointed and revealed to be fools. Why? Because wooden stones can't speak or breathe. (laughs) In fact, verse 19, God has humiliated them further by essentially saying, these are your teachers? Come on! Are you kidding me? This sort of reminds me of Elijah's taunting of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Remember that? You know the story. Yeah, same thing is going on right here. And God is doing that with regards to Babylon. And so by contrast, the call of verse 20 is for the earth to be silent before the Lord. You see, He is the one true God 
to whom man must quietly submit for strength, safety, and ultimate satisfaction. Certainly, he is in huge contrast to the gods that Babylon has crafted. There is a deep contrast there. Now, beloved, I trust that you have captured the lesson of this text. It's clear. Pride goes before destruction. With every stanza, that is the case. You see the evil that's embedded in pride, and then you see their fall. You see, these words aren't used in this text. But the constant refrain with each of the evils mentioned is a corresponding judgment and downfall. God is serious about this. And so should his people. His people who were being revealed this through the tablets that were put on display by Habakkuk. Now you might say, well, this is about Babylon. However, it's also an indirect message to wicked Judah at the same time. Why? Because they were guilty of violence as well. Look what it says in verses 2 and 3 back in chapter 1. Remember, here's Habakkuk speaking to God saying, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence Yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. What was being spoken to Babylon here was certainly characteristic of Judah as well. They had hearts of pride. They were just as guilty. And that's why they were going to be punished. And so Habakkuk and the righteous remnant would also suffer the pains of punishment, captivity with them. For us, the church, you know, it's possible that there are some who are thinking this morning, this whole account has nothing to do with me. I'm not guilty of these sins. Oh, really? There are times when believers steal. You steal time at your job. When you clock out, let's say, for break. And then clock back in and take some more break. How about borrowing something from your job and then never bringing it back? And then all of a sudden the boss says, where's this? Oh, I borrowed it. (laughs) How about lying? Taking advantage of others. You're cruel, especially in your tongues with one another. Unforgiving, trusting and worshiping something other than the one true God. Are there times that believers are guilty of these things? Absolutely. They're all aspects of what we consider right here this morning. They are. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, take note of this. Let him who thinks he is strong take heed lest he fall. And Paul just got done talking to the church at Corinth about Israel and their sins by which they fell. It was a warning to them. Pride goes before a fall. Beloved, may we be warned. 
So we need to have this lesson embedded upon our hearts. But not just that. I think what you're saying in your mind, or at least I'm hoping in your mind, you're saying, what's the cure for this? I don't want my life in any way to be characterized by this kind of thing. What's the cure? And so we come to the application, and I ask that question, what is the cure for pride which leads to destruction? Again, you know it. Our text has the answer. Did you realize that? By way of context, we go to verse 4 once again, as we did earlier, which provides the introduction to verses 6 to 20. Again, what does it say there? Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. We saw that very clearly. But we don't want to stop there. What's the next phrase? But the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. And so the answer is to humble yourselves before God by faith. James 4 and verse 6 says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen? Amen. That's wonderful hope for our hearts because we know there's pride there. And so first, by faith, embrace the God of the Bible. By faith, embrace the God of the Bible. That's the first application. The Apostle Paul used verse 4 there twice to speak on the importance of justification alone by faith for salvation. Romans 1 verse 17, Galatians 3 and verse 11. And so through humble faith in Christ, you are declared righteous and you live. No longer facing destruction. Separated from God forever. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. First John 5, 4 and 5. It says these words, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith in the one true God of the Bible is victory. It's victory. You know, a great illustration of this is found in Luke 18. I want you to go with me there, holding your space in Habakkuk 2. Go with me to Luke 18. You know this story. Parable that Jesus shared with some religious leaders. Luke 18, beginning with verse 9. Jesus said, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that some passage? You bet. Very revealing. The ironic thing there is that the humble is the one who walks away justified, not the other who toots their own horn, so to speak, claiming to be religious and right with God. So are you here today without the God of the Bible? You know, it's possible that you could be sitting amongst us this morning not knowing God. Tooting your own horn spiritually, or even like the Babylonian nation whose strength was their God? You're not trusting in the God of the Bible. You're not concerned with what He cares about. Your only concern is yourself. You're number one. Thinking everything is okay. I pray that you, like Nebuchadnezzar, will confess your ugly pride. Acknowledge and embrace the one true God for yourself. That's my prayer this morning as your pastor. I'm concerned that there could be someone amongst us who doesn't know the God of the Bible. Going their own way. Maybe even putting on a front and not knowing God. Right now, the scriptures tell us that you are facing destruction. Eternal separation forever. So I trust that you will embrace the God of the Bible. That's where the cure begins. Did you know that? That's where it begins. It's impossible to be all that you should be for God without His grace poured upon your heart in salvation. But there's another application here, beloved, and that's this. By faith, devote yourself to the God of the Bible. By faith, devote yourself to the God of the Bible. That is simply this, live by faith. Live by faith. This is what the righteous do. What God expected of Habakkuk and the righteous remnant to live by faith. This means that they were to trust God, His Word, His promises. For one thing, the judgment that was to come upon Babylon. Look back with me at verse 3. There's a promise there. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Babylon will be judged. You can bank on that. That's my promise to you. Trust in that. But also they needed to trust that God would make all things right in the end. Let's go back to verse 14. 
I told you that these, these words were like blinking lights of hope in the midst of this judgment. And it certainly is. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This isn't just restoration after captivity. Certainly there would be a restoration. And things wouldn't be the same. But that's not what the prophet is talking about here. Maybe he didn't fully understand what he was saying under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. No, he's actually speaking to a time when Christ will reign upon this earth during the millennium and on into the eternal state. We don't have the time this morning, but write down Revelations 18 to 22. All four of those chapters. You come down to the end of the tribulation where God will judge Babylon at this, at that time, at the end of the tribulation. And then he will come with his people and set his foot upon the Mount of Olives. And he will establish his kingdom. His throne will be there in Jerusalem. And he will reign for a thousand years. And things will be so much different. And then at the end, he will do away with the forces that rise up against him. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Oh, how wonderful that is. That's something that we can look forward to. It wasn't fulfilled during their time. It hasn't been fulfilled in our time as of yet. But we look forward to what God has promised and trust in that. And so, beloved, like the righteous of that time, God's people in these troubling days need to take the long look. We're discouraged by all that's going on around us right now. In our government, it seems to be going in a different direction than what we stand for. But let's take the long look. Let's don't get caught up in the temporary right now. Look to what lies ahead. When Jesus is going to reign. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Jesus wins. Isn't that wonderful? That's the hope that we have in our hearts. We can live with that promise every day. Let it fill your souls. I like what it says in Hebrews 11 and verse 13. Capture this. And these died in faith. He's speaking about all those who went before us without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That should be us. Though we haven't realized this yet, it's coming. That's our hope. Isaiah 26, 3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Yeah. So living by faith means to trust God, but also it means to submit to him. To submit to his word in humble obedience, following him. What does it say there in verse 20? What's the last phrase of this chapter? Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth be silent. In one sense, this was a subtle reproof to Habakkuk. It was. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 1, what did he say? 
I will stand on my guard poles and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And at the end of this chapter, God says, let all the earth be silent before me. It's a subtle reproof to Habakkuk, but at the same time, It's a call to silent submission before God with firm confidence that His ways are best, even if we don't understand. In their minds, they're thinking, how could God use an evil nation to bring judgment upon us? That just doesn't make sense. That's not right. It shouldn't be there. But God is saying, keep silent. Rest in me. Follow me no matter what. Because I always do what's right. So submit to him, follow him, no matter what. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I believe some of you are familiar with this psalm. Sometime back, I think I preached on this passage of Scripture, this whole psalm. But I want you to just notice the last two verses of Psalm 46. What does it say there? See striving, or another way to translate this is be still and know that I am God. Think about that. The one true God in contrast to the gods that Babylon had crafted. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And so, beloved, let this be said of you and I today, this morning. Just as it was of Luther in his days. Remember the difficulty he had during the Reformation? Psalm 46 was his favorite psalm. He wrote that great hymn out of that psalm. A mighty fortress is our God. In fact, as Wearsby said of Habakkuk, I believe he was transformed from being a worrier and a watcher to being a worshiper. And that is so true. Because as we go into chapter 3, you hear a different tone from Habakkuk. A tone that should come from you and I. Worshiping God, standing before Him, submitting to Him, following Him, no matter what. Not questioning His purposes, His plan, because what He does is always right. Amen? It is. And so, yes, the righteous will live by His faith. It begins with salvation, and then it continues on trusting Him and being devoted to Him This is the cure for the destructive forces of pride. And so as you leave here today, I pray that that old hymn, that song, will be upon your heart. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's what it comes down to. This is a humility that I believe honors God. And I trust that that will be in your hearts.
this week and in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And what a blessing it is to walk through this passage of Scripture. God, it is so evident that pride results in destruction. I pray that the hearts of our people have got that lesson embedded into their hearts. God, to know that you're serious about this. And I also pray, Father, that each person in this room knows Jesus as their Savior because that's the beginning of a cure as we battle this matter of pride by your grace. Oh God, help your people each and every day to trust in you, to devote themselves to you, to look into your word, to see what it says, and let it stand. Let us be silent before you, doing your will and honoring you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.